You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. This is an eight-part series on the events subsequent to the return of Christ, and we did it here in 1979-80. It was 40 sessions, so... We're going to have a a, a limited view of this subject. It is massive in its proportions. But tonight our aim is to set the overall theme of this study and to have a look at the overall plan of the 50-year period between the resurrection of the dead and the full establishment of the kingdom. You get some idea of the scope of our study by the notes that have been handed out to you. Most of what you're going to see on the screen tonight is on those, that sheet of notes that I've given you. So, brothers and sisters and young people, here is a fundamental principle with which we must begin. A wise man in Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 18, and I want you to turn this passage up if you would, because I want to have a look at the context of it. Proverbs chapter 29. In this little section of the book of Proverbs, the wise man Solomon is looking at the, the advantage of being able to see into the future and to make decisions based upon your vision of the future. You get a feel for his context if you have a look at verse 14, for example, of this chapter, where we read, The king that faithfully judgeth the poor, his throne shall be established forever. Well, there are very few kings who do that. They are few and far between. But the wise king who does that can secure his throne. Similarly, in verse 15, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. And so where discipline is is applied to children as they're growing up and they learn to obey their parents and to honour them, then, of course, they will walk in a straight way. But if you don't do it then, you're not going to achieve it in the future. The same would apply, for example, to verse 21. He that delicately bringeth up his servant from a child, and of course men don't normally deal very well with slaves, they mistreat slaves, but here is a master who can look into the future. He looks down the corridor and says, if I treat my slave kindly and well and justly, he'll want to serve me forever, as we read in that verse. And the idea, of course, of the context is looking into the future and making wise decisions now about what ought to be done to secure that future. Now that's the context of verse 18. Where there is no vision, the people perish, the wise man says. That word vision there, chazam, in the Hebrew means mental sight. From the root chazar, to gaze at something, or mentally to perceive, or to contemplate with pleasure. Hence to have a vision. It's talking about that ability that we as human beings have got that we believe the animal kingdom doesn't have. The ability to be able to form pictures in your mind. Now of course there's a wide spectrum of the kinds of pictures that can be painted in the mind. They can go from the wonderful and the beautiful and the majestic which the word of God presents or to the very base and carnal which the world presents. And of course there's a wide spectrum in between. So where there is no vision, where people don't look into the future, they're likely, he says, to perish. Now that word perish in the Hebrew, para, means to loosen. 
to expose or to dismiss. And that's why the more literal translators, like Rotherham, are translated a bit differently. Rotherham says, a people is let loose. Young's literal says, without a vision is a people made naked. And we certainly don't want to be in that state of spiritual nakedness at the arrival of our Lord Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters and young people, right at the outset we established the need for this study. And I was exposed to this as an 18 year old many, many years ago, back in 1967, uh, when I just got baptised recently, and it changed my life. And I dedicated myself to understanding more. And I'm still learning about this subject 50 odd years later. It is a vast subject, and the Word of God is full of it, as you're going to see. The Word of God is primarily prophecy. All of those sections of Scripture that we would say are history, when you look at them very carefully, you find that they are, in fact, prophecy. We're going to have a look then, as our title suggests tonight, of the march of the rainbowed angel. And we, of course, hope to be part of that mighty rainbowed angel. And we're going to go from Sinai, where they commenced their journey, to the sanctuary, to the place where the temple will finally be built and open for service. And that will be, of course, God willing, our subject way down the track in our last study on this subject. Brother Thomas said this when writing in Anastasis back in 1866 about the value of understanding this subject. He says, the more we understand of what we profess to believe, the stronger is our faith therein. And the nearer we approach its development, and I think we all agree we're very near, the more necessary it is that a lively interest be kindled in us, that our lamps be well trimmed and our lights be found brightly burning. And he quotes from Matthew 25. So let's just stand back, shall we, and have a look at the ages of human history. We're all familiar with the 7,000 year plan of our God and he's working it out and we know where we are in the scheme of things. You go back, of course, to the beginning of the creation. You have an, an age called the Antediluvian, the pre-flood age. Then you had the flood 1,656 years after creation. Then you had the Jewish age, which lasted through to AD 70. And, of course, in that period, our Lord Jesus Christ came on the scene. Then you have the age that we're in, the age of the Gentiles, which comes down to where we are today. The subject that we're going to be dealing with over this next few months, God willing... He's going to focus just on a 50-year period. That 50-year period from the return of Christ to raise the dead until he has full control over all the earth and has subjected all nations under his rule. That's the period we're going to be focusing on in our studies. And of course, beyond that, we have the millennium. When you look at the millennium, of course, it leads ultimately to God being all and in all. And the millennium is bounded at both ends, it's bookended, you might say, by, I believe, a 50-year period. Now, we're not told the exact length of what's called the little season at the end of the millennium, when the restraints are taken away from the human race, and, of course, there's a great rebellion against the rule of Christ. We're not told how long that is, but given what has to happen in that period, one would expect that it would be about 50 years in duration. And, of course... The period we've been talking about, that we've got to focus on, is this 50-year period up front called the Jubilee period. Jubilee obviously being 50 years. And we know what's going to happen, because that 50 years is going to see the subjugation of all flesh. 
all of the revolt against God in any form that we now see on the, on the planet will have been removed. And all the sons of men will bow the knee and every tongue shall confess, as we read in Isaiah chapter 45, every tongue shall confess to the glory of our God. So flesh will be subdued. It will be bound, as we read in Revelation 20, uh, for a thousand years and then, of course, unleashed as the authority of Christ and the saints is withdrawn to allow men to make up their mind as, as to whether they really want immortality. Many of them will believe, having lived for hundreds of years, but they don't need it anyway. And they'll rebel. And ultimately, of course, at the end of that little season, all mortal flesh will be eradicated from the face of the earth and God will be all and in all. That brings, of course, the end of that 7,000-year plan. Now, how do we demonstrate that we have a jubilee period at the beginning of this period of the millennium? Well, that's the exercise I want to take you through now, and I need your support here. I need you to look up these passages with me. I want you to come initially to Ezekiel chapter 1, and then a little further down the track, we're going to go to Ezekiel chapter 40. Now, I know from experience that there are those who find it this bit, a bit difficult. Some who say, oh, I don't know about that. And my recommendation to them has been, go and have a really good look at the Temple of Ezekiel's Prophecy, written by Brother Sully, chapter 2. All right? And if you go to that, that chapter, chapter 2 of, of the Temple of Ezekiel's Prophecy, and you ruminate upon it and look carefully at the Scriptures, then you'll be convinced that this is in fact what that scripture is saying. So let's just see if we can work our way through it. Now you have this on the notes that were given to you. It's on the, what I would say is the back page. The Jubilee period is there, so the detail is there for you to follow. What you have on the screen, of course, is the reigns of the last two or three kings of the kingdom of Judah, terminating with the 11th year of Zedekiah the prince, who was removed from the throne. So you've got the last 13 years of Josiah, that great and wonderful king, followed by the three months of Jehoahaz, the 11 years of the rotter Jehoiakim, then the removal of his son Jehoiachin after three months and ten days, and as I said, 11 years of Zedekiah. And then you've got a 14-year period beyond that to the termination, as we'll see in Ezekiel chapter 40, where we have the building and the opening of the temple for service. So, if you're in Ezekiel chapter 1, let's just read the first two verses. Now, it came to pass in the 30th year. Now, I'm going to stop there, because when people read that, they say, oh, well, Ezekiel was a priest, and priests began their ministry at age 30. Now, that would be terrific if there wasn't a second date. There is a second date. So, let's just read again. Now it came to pass in the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I was among the, the captives by the river of Kibar, that the heavens were opened. Now what that means, of course, scripturally is that there's a government opened, because that's what heaven represents in scripture. And I saw, he said, visions of Elohim, or visions of mighty ones. And what follows, of course, in Ezekiel chapter 1, is the cherubim. Right, and we know this wonderful vision, the cherubim, sets forth the work of Christ and the saints in glory. And you get to the end of chapter 1 and you've got a throne established. And guess what's over the throne? 
a rainbow. And you don't get rainbows until a storm has passed. And so you see, by the time you get to the end of Ezekiel chapter 1, you've got to a period of time when there's peace on earth. So it's a wonderful chapter, a wonderful way to begin this wonderful prophecy. So what about this second day? Verse 2. In the fifth day of the month, which was the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity. Now you can see on the screen here that dotted vertical line that runs down at the end of the reign of Jehoiachin. That's Jehoiachin's captivity. What we're reading here in Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, is referring to the fifth year of his captivity. So you've got to come five years down the track, five years into the reign of Zedekiah. Got that? Okay. Now, what's the 30th year then, do you think? Well, it's a simple, simple mathematical equation, isn't it? If he's seeing this vision here in the fifth year of Jehoiachin, and he says it's the 30th year, then legitimately you can step back 30 years. And if you step back 30 years, you, ha you happen to come to an extremely significant year. The year, the 18th year of Josiah, the year in which his and his nation's destiny was determined. That was the year Josiah was given the book that had been found, the last copy of the law in the land. Being cemented into the corner of the temple, they were repairing the temple, they found it. He sent his delegation to hold of the prophetess and the message came back, Josiah, you're wasting your time basically. You're not going to redeem this people. They're too far gone. The judgments are coming. It's too late. I've pronounced my judgments. But you, you're different. I'm going to kill you and raise you from the dead and take you into the kingdom. You like that? All right? That's exactly what God said to him. You're going to die because I don't want you to see the judgments that I'm going to bring upon this people. So his destiny was determined. The destiny of that nation was determined in the 18th year of Josiah, the year of the great Passover. So it's a very, very important year. Now come with me to Ezekiel chapter 40. Now Ezekiel 40 to 48, of course, is the record which speaks about the temple having been completed. Now that's a very important point. We're not reading here in Ezekiel 40 about the temple being built. We're reading about the temple being used. You have a look with me at Ezekiel chapter 40 and have a look, for instance, at verse 43. He's, he's in the, on the north side of the house here and he's in the place where sacrifice is made and we read in verse 43 and within were hooks and hand broad, that is to hang up the sacrifices, fastened round about and upon the tables, that is the tables where they divided up the sacrifices, was the flesh of the offering. Now, you don't find sacrifices being made in an incomplete building. Half built. This building is complete when Ezekiel sees it. He's walked around it. It's gone into operation because, you see, in chapter 43, he sees the glory return to it. Christ and the saints come into this place and we've got a house of prayer for all nations. Now, it's very important. Because when you read verse 1, this is what you read. Now notice here again, you've got a double dating. Ezekiel 40 verse 1. 
in the five and twentieth year of our captivity, that's Jehoiachin's captivity, in the beginning of the year, which means it's the month Abib, in the tenth day of the month, which means it's the day that the, the Passover lamb is corralled for five days until it's sacrificed on the 14th. So it's a pretty significant time, isn't it? This is the tenth of Abib. And then it gives you the second dating. It says, in the 14th year after that the city was smitten, in the selfsame day, the hand of Yahweh was upon me and he brought me hither. And what does he see? He sees a completed house. Uh, he's looking, standing at the south of that house. He's seeing this completed house. And it's gone into operation. It's in use. So what are we saying here? Well, we're saying that there's a precision here. You see, the 18th year of Josiah was the year in which they held the great Passover. Ezekiel is now up here in chapter 40 verse 1 seeing the completed temple on the 10th day of Abib when the lamb has been corralled in preparation for sacrifice. It's exactly to the day. 50 years. Because you see, when you have a look and what it says in Ezekiel 40 verse 1, it's the 25th year of our captivity. The 25th year of the captivity means if you go back to the cap captivity of Jehoiachin and come on 25 years, you're up here. So we had a 30 years and now we've got a 20 years. 50 years, exactly. Ezekiel is a book of sign. It's a book that tells us a lot about the, the way in which God works in terms of timings and this is a very important aspect of it. So we can establish, if you have any doubts about that, just do your own homework, do some work on it, get out the Temple of Ezekiel's prophecy and you like many others will be convinced that it is the case. You see what we're talking about here is this 50 year period from the time that destinies are determined which means, of course, for you and me, the judgment seat of Christ, to the time when the temple is opened, and if we are there, by the grace of God, we'll enter in with Christ as the glory re-entering that house. And we'll be, of course, priests and ministers in that house for the next thousand years. Wonderful things, brothers and sisters and young people, are before the people of God. So when you come and have a look then at how you can divide that 50-year period up, here's the first principle of it. Brother Thomas wrote this in Eureka, Volume 1, page 187. He's talking about resurrection and the people of the resurrection. He says, between their resurrection and glorification is the resurrection state styled in the resurrection. A period of 40 years preceding the millennium in which some of the most important events of the apocalypse are to be transacted. The end of this judicial period, because it's going to be a period of judgment during which the kingdom is being established or set up, is the evening time, the time preceding the millennial day. And so, without going into the proofs for that now, because that will come up in a subsequent study, God willing, we'll have a look and we'll actually nail that down that there's a 40-year period from Armageddon through to the establishment of the kingdom. If you fit that 40-year period into the 50, and it's obviously at the end of that 50 years, 
That leaves you, of course, a 10-year period up front. Now, if we had chosen the reading of Revelation chapter 10, and it's a wonderful chapter in the Apocalypse, we'd read about this wonderful vision of the mighty rainbow angel. And there he is, his face shines as the sun, we are told. He has a rainbow over his head. He is enshrouded with a cloud, a white cloud, which speaks, of course, of the multitude of the saints in glory, surrounding Christ in that day. And white being the colour of righteousness symbolises what they are. And we know, of course, those symbols pretty well. The rainbow speaks of a covenant of peace, the time when peace has descended upon the earth. Perhaps we might just have a quick look at Revelation chapter 10, because there's something very significant that needs to be recognised here. And that is, as this illustration on the screen demonstrates, what we see in Revelation 10, verses 1 and 2, is the mighty rainbowed angel at the end of his military career. It's just ended because his feet are still on fire, and fire is a symbol for divine judgment. Feet are the means whereby you transport from one place to another. So the saints have gone out. They've done their work over 40 years. And they, and, and they have, of course, overcome all opposition. So we read in this, uh, in this 10th chapter of Revelation at verse 1, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud and a rainbow. Actually, there's an article there. The rainbow was upon his head. And his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little scroll open, and being open, of course, it means that what was written in that scroll has been unfolded or fulfilled. It's been played out. So he opened scroll in his hand, and it says, He set his right foot upon the sea, the sea being the Mediterranean Sea, which means he has conquered the nations in and around Israel. And then he sets his left foot upon the earth. And the earth here is the Roman earth. That is, the Europe European Roman earth. Those powers that have opposed Christ's rule beyond Armageddon. They have to be crushed. And we're going to see very clearly how they will be crushed as we proceed in our studies. So here you've got this mighty angel. He's no longer marching. The march is over. And he is now settled. He is victorious. You see... Brothers and sisters and young people, this is a marvellous vision of what's coming. And we're going to cover that ground of that march. We're going to have a look and see what happens in that march and look at many of the details of it. Now just turn the page with me, or at least in my Bible it's turning the page, to verse 8 of Revelation chapter 10. Verse 8 we read, And the voice which I heard from heaven, says John, spake unto me again and said... Go and take the little scroll which is open in the hand of the angel which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. Now John, of course, was incorporate in that angel. Just like you and me, he's a member of it if he's there as an immortal. And he is invited now in his mortality to approach the angel to ask for the scroll and to eat it. That's what he says, verse 9. And I went, he says, so he takes the initiative and said unto him, Give me the little scroll. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up. It shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. In other words, 
John, this is a work that must be done. It'll be sweet in your mouth. You will agree with the sentiments of divine judgment. You will see the reason for it and you will, won't have any problem being involved in it, but it won't be a sweet process when it gets, as it were, to your stomach. It'll be bitter in many ways. There's a principle in that, of course, which you can bring into life generally. But, you see, the point of this exercise is simply this. If we want to be there, to be part of that mighty angel, then we need, we need to understand what's in that scroll and we need to make it part of, it, of ourselves. You know, they say, you are what you eat. So if you eat the scroll, which has got the divine judgments in it, it means you know what those judgments are, you know what that scroll contains, and you agree with it, it's sweet in your mouth, and you want to be there to actually fulfil it. That's why this study is so critically important. Without a vision, a people is made naked. Let's then have a look at this chart, which you will also have in your notes. This chart is an endeavour to do the impossible. You know why it's impossible? There are literally millions of things that have to be done by the saints in this 50-year period. Millions of them. So what we're going to do is we've got to group them together and say, well, these are the major things that have to be done. And of course, they, they are done concurrently. That is, they're, they're, going, to, they're going to be uh, unfolding many things happening at the same time. Concomitant events, they, they call them. Now the first of those, of course, right over on the left-hand side of the chart is the return of Christ to raise the dead. Unknown to the world, they won't know he's in the earth, and in fact they're not going to care, because that's the beginning of the time of trouble such as never was. Now they think life is hard now, wait until tomorrow. Then you've got the next vertical line, the red line, which is the Armageddon line, and you'll see that's a 10-year period, and a lot of stuff has to happen in that 10 years, as we will find out in our study. And then, of course, you've got that 40 years of divine judgment leading up to the culmination when Christ's universal rule is accomplished. So what happens in this period? Well, we're going to see in a moment that the judgment seat itself takes around 12 months. And I emphasise that because I'm often approached by people who say, you say that the judgment is, is 10 years. I have never said the judgment is 10 years. What I have said is that there's a period of 10 years from the resurrection to Armageddon. The actual judgment seat process lasts for one year, and we'll demonstrate that in a second. So that's a, a fairly short period of time, and thankfully it is. Then you have the marriage of the Lamb and the preparation of the saints for the work that they have to do. A bit more about that in a moment. Then we come, of course, to their, to their going out, as it were, at the time of Armageddon. In fact, they start a little bit before that. You're going to see it in a second. So Yahweh Sabaoth, he who will become armies, is manifested in power for 40 years, but their glory is not seen by the world. Largely unseen in what they do, like the angels today. Because, of course, we know from Zechariah chapter 14 that the bright ones draw in and they will not be revealed in their full glory to the world until the evening time comes. That is, the, the time towards the end of that 40 years of divine judgments. What about the events happening? Well, the first major one is Elijah's mission to scatter Jewry outside the land of Israel. 
And that, of course, is to begin the process of the second exodus of Israel, which we know from Micah chapter 7 and verse 15 is for 40 years, like the first exodus. This happens, begins at least, prior to Armageddon, this red line, as does two other things that are very important before the Battle of Armageddon. The Arabs in the Sinaitic region have to be subdued to receive the Jews who will flee from Gog because their army will be defeated in the land together with every other army in the land. And you also have, before Armageddon, the smiting and healing of Egypt. Now those two things, of course, will take time to accomplish and though they begin before Armageddon, the work will go on after Armageddon. In, in fact, the smiting and healing of Egypt is going to be a very long process, a 40-year process to achieve what Isaiah 19 says has to be achieved. So then come to Armageddon, to this red vertical line. We all know what Armageddon is, and we'll be looking at it in some detail later on. That will culminate in the remnant of Judah in the land being saved. The land will be divided up and settled over this next period of time, over that 40 years. The first seven months after Armageddon will be spent burying the remnants of Gog's army and every bone will be buried out of sight. At the same time, a, a huge company of saints will go forth to fulfil Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. They will take a message out to the nations, a demand that they submit to the rule of Christ. It's called the Mid-Heaven Proclamation, and it goes on for ten years. Now that gives the nations plenty of time, and of course we know what some will do. The Catholic nations, particularly those of Europe, will defy that demand. They will set up a confederacy against the rule of Christ. They will call him the Antichrist. And they will, of course, have many supporters. But they'll be given ten years to make up their mind on that. We call it mid-heaven because, you see, heaven is the symbol for government in the scripture. The earth, of course, refers to ordinary man, common man. If you go mid-heaven, that is, if you're not right up in the heavens or down near the earth, if you're mid-heaven, it means that your message is to both governments and to people. And, of course, we know that governments don't always tell the people what the people should know. That's simply a fact of life today, isn't it? So you have to tell both governments and people so that everybody has their own decision to make. That Midheaven proclamation culminates ten years after Armageddon with the destruction of Rome as the centre of papal authority. And the next 30 years is about the eradication of the Catholic system from Europe. While that's all going on, just after Armageddon, you've got sensible nations like Britain and hopefully Australia who will come and submit to Christ's rule. They won't come necessarily wanting to be Christadelphians. But they'll come and submit because they won't have any real choice. And they'll have to be educated and converted. They'll also be, some of them, involved in the collection of materials, just like David did through uh, Hiram, king of Tyre, materials for the temple. And so the temple will begin to be built in this period. It will take 40 years to complete that work. Somewhere down the track, when the Catholic system has been given its greatest blow, its last pope will have been destroyed. The empire that supports it will have been destroyed. This is ten years before the end, by the way. The marriage supper of the Lamb will be held. 
Now the marriage was held right back just after the judgment seat. But the marriage supper is held up here. And the reason it's held up there, just before the, the temple is opened, is because Christ is not going to reveal his bride to the world until he's destroyed the false one. And the false one is Babylon the Great. And that's why the glory of the saints will be kept in until they can be revealed in the fullness of their glory when that system has been destroyed. Not all its adherents, but the system and the empire which supports it. And ultimately, of course, all nations will submit to the rule of Christ. Now I can leave you to ponder the, the notes that you've been given to, to get that some sort of system in your mind. You'll also notice that there's actually a list of the March of the Rainbowed Angel in your notes, listing from points 1 to 29, which follows that same pattern. You'll also notice that there's a series of maps, and I'm going to go through those maps with you shortly. In fact, right now. So let's have a look at it in map form. Events unknown to the world. Christ returns to raise the dead and to gather the living for judgment. We will be removed. The world will go into chaos with Daniel chapter 12 verse 1 being fulfilled. A time of trouble descending upon the, on the earth so that men's hearts will fail them for fear. There will be all sorts of evils going on. Won't be a, a nice place to, to be. So we've got the raising of the dead and of course they're taken to the place of judgment which we'll demonstrate in our studies is at Mount Sinai. When that work is done, when the marriage of the Lamb has been accomplished and the saints have been prepared for their work three and a half years before Armageddon, Elijah will be sent out to the Jews who are outside the land. It's the work of Christ to redeem the Jews who are in the land. They've already had their visit from Elijah 2,000 years ago when John the Baptist was in their midst. We'll demonstrate. I want you to have a look at this timeline with me. Come with me to Isaiah chapter 26. This is one of the marvellous little passages of scripture dealing with this subject. Isaiah 26. Verse 19 of Isaiah 26 is about the resurrection. So when you look at it, verse 19, it's, this is how it should read. Thy dead shall live. As my dead body, that is, as Christ's dead body, shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in dust, for thy dew is as the dew of lights, not herbs, but lights as it should be, uh, and it goes on to say, and the earth shall cast out the dead. So there's a clear reference to the resurrection, which we'll look at in some detail in our next study, God willing. The next verse is the one we want to focus on. Verse 20. Come, my people. So this is post-resurrection, post-judgment seat, in fact, because he says, come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers, meaning a bedchamber. So this is like a marriage taking place. And shut thy doors about thee, hide thyself as it were for a little moment, and by the way, the Hebrew word rendered little moment is riga, and it means in the wink of an eye. And it's, an obvious, it's obviously picked up by the Apostle, of course, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 52. 
where he says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. So here we've got the resurrection leading to immortality. And then it says at the end of that verse, until the indignation be overpassed. Now, what's the indignation? Well, some think that that's Armageddon, but it's not. You know why it's not? Because of the next verse. Look at verse 21. For behold, Yahweh cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And who's going to do that? Well, Christ and the saints. So you see, the indignation of verse 20 is not Armageddon and the 40 years that follow it. It's the time of trouble such as never was, into which the rejected, by the way, will be turned. They'll be sent back into it. So it's not going to be a very pleasant time for the world or for those who are rejected. Because God's indignation will be expressed against the world in that time. Now, you can see on the screen, on the left-hand side at the base, a reference to Exodus chapter 40, verses 2 and 33 to 36. And I want you to come with me, if you wouldn't mind, to Exodus chapter 40, because this is how you demonstrate that the actual judgment process is 12 months, approximately 12 months. Now Exodus 40 is the last chapter in Exodus and it deals, of course, with the completion of the tabernacle and its erection in one day. On the first day of the first month of their second year out of Egypt, the tabernacle goes up in the morning, the glory of God enters it, and so begins a new era for Israel. Have a look at verse 2 of Exodus chapter 40. On the first day of the first month shall thou set up the tabernacle, the tent of the congregation. And if you read on, what follows is exactly that, the setting up of the tabernacle. Come to verse 33. And he reared up the court round about the tabernacle and the altar and set up the hanging of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. It's done. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And so it goes on to speak about how God entered that place and, and, and dwelt between the cherubim. So what's this all about? Did you notice what we read in verse 2 when this happened? When the glory was revealed, when Yahweh dwelt between the cherubim, and we know what the cherubim represent, don't we, brothers and sisters? The cherubim represent the saints in glory with Christ as the mercy seat, all from the same piece of gold. And there is the glory of Yahweh in the midst of the cherubim. In other words, the saints are immortalised. That's what that means. If you want a proof of that, you need to go to Psalm 68, which we will do eventually, and have a look and see what Psalm 68 says about that. This is a, this is a way of referring to the, to the, to the immortalisation of the saints. So when did it happen? It happened on the first day of the first month of their second year out of Egypt. So when did they leave? Well, they left Egypt on the 15th day of the first month, Abib, didn't they? So how long then is it from the 15th day of the first month until the tabernacle is complete and the glory enters it? It's about 11 and a half months. All right? It's approximately 12 months. So the scripture's telling you something. From the time that we were removed to go to the place of judgment, just like... Israel was removed from Egypt from the time we leave, brothers and sisters, to the time we're immortalised, about 12 months. I don't think I want the judgment seat to last much longer than that anyway. Do you? So, 
That's the revelation of Scripture. So Isaiah 26, what does it refer to? Well, it refers, as said, to the privacy and security of the marriage chamber where Christ takes his bride. So how long are they in this marriage chamber, as it were? Well, when we're back here in the Old Testament, come to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy 24 and verse 5. Now, you'll know that the first four verses of Deuteronomy 24 are about marriage, divorce, etc., laws governing the, the practice of divorce as it was practiced by some in Israel at that time. For the hardness of their hearts, Moses gave that law, although, of course, it's misunderstood, that passage. But the subject's about marriage. Okay? So it's verse 5. Verse 5 says this. When a man hath taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war, neither shall he be charged with any business, but he shall be free at home one year, and shall cheer up his wife which he hath taken. Hands up, anyone, any man, any uh, husband in this room that ever did that? Anyone? Of course there is. There's no one. Because no one ever did. There's not been one soul since that was written who's ever done it. You couldn't do it. You starved to death, wouldn't you? Your new wife would starve to death. It wouldn't matter if you were King Solomon, you couldn't do that. You had to rule the kingdom. It says he will not go to war. He will not be charged with any business. You don't do anything except cheer up your wife. You know what that word cheer up means? To rejoice, to be glad, to make glad. It would be great if we could have 12 months, brethren, wouldn't it? Cheer up our wife after we got married. But it doesn't happen. Because you see, only one man will ever do it. And that man is Jesus Christ. And he is going to spend 12 months doing nothing else but meeting every member of his bride. And he'll want to get to know you personally. He'll want to come and see you and say, yeah, you were in the book of life. That's why you're here. I don't know you personally. I know you well, but I don't know you personally. Let's just spend a little time together. He's going to come and see you. Just as a husband takes a wife. And so that's going to take him 12 months, isn't it? To get around the millions of the glorified, 24 hours a day, because he won't need to sleep. It will take him that long. That's when that prophecy will be fulfilled. And that's going to last for one year. So you've got a year of judgment. You've got a year of rejoicing where no preparation for war. There's no planning, no instructions given about any business. Just rejoicing with Christ. That's a real marriage isn't it? That's a real marriage. And so we've got two years. There's only eight left in the ten. All right, what's going to happen in that? Well, as you can see, when you come beyond that, you've got preparation for the work that is in front of the saints. That's what Psalm 149 is about, and we're going to have a look at that a little later on. So here you've got a four and a half year period where the angels will retire. And they're in their retirement, they will pass over their duties and instruct the saints as to what those saints are going to do for the next 45 years or so. And that's a lot of things. That's why it's going to take some considerable time. And when that period is over, three and a half years before Armageddon, Elijah will go out with many saints, as we read in Matthew 24, and he will go out to warn the Jews that the time of the revelation of their Messiah and the earth is at hand. Or, as it's called in Matthew chapter 24, the, the, the time, the day of the Son of Man. 
So what we have here then is the, is the 10 years filled up leading up to Armageddon, as you can see it there on that chart. In that period of three and a half years, prior to Armageddon, as we pointed out, two things have to happen at least. One is the preparation of the Arab peoples to the south of Israel, and the other one is the beginning of the smiting and healing of Egypt, of Isaiah chapter 19. Okay, let's go back to our maps, shall we? These are the events that lead to Armageddon. You have Gog pressing down through Turkey with many ships, Daniel 11 verse 40, coming down the coastal strip of the land of Israel through Syria, down through Lebanon and into Egypt, taking that as a beachhead, pushing the IDF and, and others out from that, that uh, beachhead. Christ and the saints, who are at Sinai, will respond to this by beginning the subjugation of the Sinaitic Arab peoples. And we'll talk about that as we proceed. Gog will conquer Egypt. He will become a cruel lord in the land of Egypt. In that period, we believe that the ships of Tarshish of Psalm 48 will be destroyed by the Gogian forces, the many ships that we read about in Daniel 11. And so, of course, the, the, what we would call the Western powers today, or the Tarshish powers, as the scripture calls them, will not have access to the land of Israel through the Mediterranean. They're going to have to come in through the Persian Gulf. And that, of course, is where the allies of Israel and of Britain and others will be. Powers of Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states, etc. They'll have to come through that way. And they will fortify themselves around Jerusalem. Now, of course, Gog will hear about what's been going on to the north. Also hear about this strange activity to the east. That's why it says in Daniel chapter 11 and verse 43, tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him and he shall go forth to make away many. So we come with great fury, leaving an occupying force behind in Egypt. Gog will make his way back, his principal bulk of his army, back to the land of Israel. And there they will encounter the other nations, the all nations of Joel 3, verse 2, and Zechariah 14, verse 2, who will have gathered themselves there and ensconced themselves around Jerusalem. Christ and the saints will then proceed into Egypt, behind the Gogian forces, wipe out what remains, and begin that process of smiting and healing Egypt. The Jews in the land will be defeated, like all the other nations who are there, by Gog. They will be victorious over all comers. That might take a little while, but they will be victorious. And, of course, the Jews have to flee somewhere. Some of them will go into captivity. We read that in Zechariah 14. Some will flee to the south. The Arabs to the south will have been prepared to receive them, as we'll see from Isaiah chapter 21. We're coming up, aren't we, towards Armageddon. We're getting close to that major battle, the great battle of God Almighty. Christ and the saints advance from Sinai to Jerusalem. And there's a path given to us in Deuteronomy 33 and Psalm 68 and in Habakkuk chapter 3. They come through the deserts and they come in from the east like the rising sun. And then, of course, you've got the splitting of the Mount of Olives, the battle of Armageddon, the destruction of the Gogian host and the process of judgment beginning. When the news of this, and the dust has settled a little bit, when the news arrives to the Jews who have fled, they will return to the land to meet their Messiah. And then a proclamation, as we said, the mid-heaven proclamation goes forth to the nation to submit to Christ's rule, the throne of David, having been established at the foot of Mount Zion. And then we, can, we of course, have the, the 40 years that follows and the judgments. So during that period, the land is divided up as an inheritance for the Jews 
And when, of course, Elijah brings back the bulk of them from outside the land, they'll all find a place where they rightfully belong. God knows their heritage. He knows what tribe they've come from. And he will place them where they belong. Sensible nations like Britain will come and submit to Christ's rule and he'll begin to use them in the building of the temple, as we said. And over the course of the next 40 years, Catholic Europe and its allies will be destroyed. 30 years of intense conflict after Rome is destroyed. And while it's happening, of course, it's happening because Elijah has brought the Jews into the body of Europe and they become the weapon that God uses against the revolting Catholic nations of Europe. And so the second exodus plays a very important part in the preparation, not only of the Jews, but of those lands who are in revolt against Christ for the kingdom of God to be established. So Elijah returns with the purified remnant of scattered Jewry, and ultimately all nations submit to Christ's rule. Now, let's just finish this off tonight by taking you to those passages that we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I hope that summary is helpful to you. You have the notes that you can follow up. And I would suggest if you want to pop them in the back of your Bible cover or something like that, because we will, as time goes on, we will be referring to the same things, but in much more detail. We're going to be trying to prove to you that what we've just said very briefly is in fact what the scripture teaches. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, what a wonderful chapter this is. These brethren and sisters had been in the truth for about five months when the apostle wrote this letter to them. They were suffering dreadfully. Persecution was rife. Some of them had died as a result of that persecution. I mean, how would, how would you be? Five months in the truth and you have to die for your faith. Well, that's what happened to some of them. That's why he said in verse 13, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. He's not talking about those who died a hundred years before. He's talking about people who died at that time because of persecution. That you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Now that little word bring there is quite important. It's, it's the word ago. And it means to lead or to lead along as a general leads an army. To take people with you. When you go on a journey, particularly a military journey, that's what that word means. So you see, the purpose of the resurrection and the gathering of those who are alive and remain is to prepare an army to go forth against the nations who refuse to submit to Christ's rule. You go to the same verse 15, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent... Now that, of course, is an old English word... It's the Greek word for thano, it means to come before, and the diagram correctly translates it, proceed. So the, those who are alive and remain are not going to proceed those who are resurrected. Those who are raised from the ground are going to know that Christ is in the earth before we do, because the angel will have brought them out of the ground. He goes on to say then, doesn't he, in verse 16, For the Lord himself, he and no other, autos, shall descend from heaven with a, with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And there's quite a bit in this verse. The Lord himself descends from heaven with a shout. And the Greek word, kaluzma, from kaluo, 
means to put in motion by word or command a call or a summons, a shout or command which assembles all at once. And of course, it used to be used in relation to the old galleys where they had rowers. And in order to coordinate the rowing, otherwise there'd be a clash of oars, one man would stand there and he would shout, row, row. And so everybody would row together. And so it will be. The angels will go out and they will find those that are sleeping in the dust of the earth, raise them, reform them, and transport them to the judgment seat. Why is it then the voice of the archangel? Well, there's a couple of little passages. I think we should look up. You might want to keep something in 1 Thessalonians 4. We'll be back here shortly. And have a look at Exodus 23. Exodus 23 and verses 20 and 21. This is a reference to Michael, the archangel. Look at verse 20 of Exodus 23. Now the translators, when they have translated this, have put a capital A on the word angel. That's because they know that this is no ordinary angel. This is the principal angel. This is Michael the archangel. Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. But what about this angel? Why is he different to the ordinary angel? Look at the next verse. Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. In other words, he has the delegation from God to judge worthy or unworthy. Now, no ordinary angel can do that. There's only ever been three individuals in the universe that have been able to do that. The Pope's not one of them, by the way. He thinks he is, but he's not one of them. There's Yahweh himself, of course, who delegated that authority to Michael the Archangel, which is why Christ is called Michael in Daniel 12, verse 1, because he's taken over from Michael. He now is the one that has the delegated authority to determine destinies. So just the three. So here is a very important angel. That's why you read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16 that he comes with the voice of the archangel. He's coming as the judge. He's coming to determine destinies. It goes on to say in that verse, with the trump of God. Now literally, it should read a trump. It's talking about one single trumpet. Now, under the law, there was only one occasion when one single trumpet was blown. That was in Leviticus chapter 25. Another passage I think is worth looking up. Leviticus 25 and verses 8 to 10. Leviticus 25 and verse 8, we read, And thou shalt number seven Sabbaths of years unto thee, seven times seven years, and the space of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be unto thee forty and nine years. So what we have here, of course, the Jubilee year. Verse 9. Then thou shalt cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. This is the Day of Atonement. In the Day of Atonement shall ye make the trumpet sound, notice it's one trumpet, throughout all your land. Now, one trumpet, of course, couldn't do the job, could it? A trumpet blown in Jerusalem, for example, would not be heard further north or further south or further west or east. So what would happen is that when that trumpet was blown another trumpeter would take it up and the refrain would go on. So one trumpet is sounding at the time. 
that one trumpet. Now what happens when this trumpet is blown in the Jubilee year? Verse 10. And ye shall hallow the 50th year and proclaim liberty, so it's a time for freedom, throughout all the land, unto all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee unto you, and ye shall return every man unto his possession, and ye shall return every man unto his family, which is exactly, brothers and sisters, what will happen to the raised dead. They'll return to their inheritance. What's, their, what's your inheritance? Is it 14 Leopard Street, Narangba? Is it? No, it's not. Your inheritance is the truth the kingdom of God. The Abrahamic promises, that's your inheritance. And those who have died in it will be raised to receive it, to be given that inheritance. And they'll return to the only real family that's worth having at the end of the day. And that's the divine family. That's the family they return to in the time of resurrection. Can you see how in one little verse in 1 Thessalonians 4, you have the judgment seat, you have the reference to the granting of immortality, returning to inheritance and family, all in just a few words. And the Apostle concludes that verse by saying, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then he says, then which we, we which are alive and remain, which will be most of us perhaps in this hall, shall be caught up together. That word there, uh, remain, simply means to be left over, to be remaining, to survive. And the word for caught up is harpazo. It means to snatch or to seize, to take hold of forcibly. There's no idea in that Greek word of going up or down. So the, word, the little word up in that verse is, it shouldn't be there. It, it simply means to snatch away. If you want proof of that, the very same word is used in Acts chapter 8 and the very last verse of that chapter where Philip was caught away. Same Greek word. Philip was caught away from the eunuch and dropped in Ashdod. 25 miles away. So it's talking about people being collected, snatched or seized. So you can't say, well, I'm sorry, I'll come tomorrow. You're snatched, you're seized, and off you go with the angel to the judgment seat. And, of course, like Philip, you won't have any sense of travel. You won't be going by plane, all right? There'll be no sense of travel. Philip didn't know. He was just picked up from here, and he was dropped there. It's like the saints, like the, the, I should say, the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. They were in the middle of the lake and they were in a boat and picked up from there and dropped there. And that's how it will be. We don't know how that works, but it does. That's the way that angels travel. That's divine travel. So we've taken, caught away, together with them. And you'll notice I've got red lines through the, the, the death and articles before the words uh, clouds and air. You can cross it out because there is no article there in, in, in the text. Caught, caught away together with them in clouds, which of course is the symbol of a multitude, we know from Hebrews 12 verse 1, to meet, and that word means to go and meet a dignitary, a very special person who's coming, to meet this dignitary, to meet the Lord, not in the air, that is, you're not going upstairs, but in air, or the aerial. And the aerial, of course, like the heaven, is the governing region of the earth. This is talking about people being taken to be governors, to be rulers, to be kings and priests. Which is why he says, So shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another 
with these words. Wonderful symbols here, aren't they? Very simple. We see them all around us. Symbols like the sun, the sun of righteousness, beaming down upon the sea of nations, turbulent sea of nations, drawing up people out of the sea of nations to be clouds of witnesses who after the day of judgment will come and they'll drop down their rain, but the word of God upon the, the mown grass of Psalm 72. Wonderful little image, imagery, isn't it, that we, we want to be involved in, brothers and sisters. So let's just wrap this up and summarise what we've seen here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is the order of events. The living saints will not precede the dead. Christ will return with a shout or a command that will awaken the dead. He will come with the authority of the archangel to forgive or to, or to condemn, to invite in participation or to banish. The dead raised, he will gather the living with them into a place of judgment. He will grant a reward to the faithful, that is rulership in the kingdom at his side. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. We'll be part of this hierarchy of the kingdom age, brothers and sisters. Yahweh is always going to be at the top, even though he will delegate his authority in the kingdom age to Christ. And Christ will have beside him his immortalised brethren, who will be kings and priests. The angels will have retired, but they will be a delighted audience watching the the effect of their work of 6,000 years as they see the kingdom of God unfolding and they will rejoice in it. We know that from Hebrews 2 verse 5. For unto the angels, says the apostle, hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. And that word world there in the Greek is oikomene, the inhabited world to come. The angels are not going to rule over that. The saints will rule over the world to come. And of course below them you have got this mortality line the restored tribes of Israel and the mortal populations of the nations. And one very important class in between those two, that is Christadelphian children. We're going to talk about that in our studies. We're going to talk about the, the wonderful things that our God has in store for young Christadelphian children who are obedient to their parents and trying to do the right thing, and that's pretty hard nowadays, but they're trying to do the right thing. He has prepared a place for them in his land as mortals. We'll have a look at that in Ezekiel chapter 47 in due time. Next time, God willing, we'll have a look in more detail at the resurrection of the dead, of just and unjust alike. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom.
Amen.